are listening to the Quest for Questions podcast, live from wherever Conrad's Yerba Mate addiction takes us to. In this show, we ask not-so-common questions to not-so-common humans. In search of not-so-common answers, you're here as a rebel, scratching your head, trying to navigate the fast-changing world of fake news, charlatans, and all-around bullshit. Together, each week, we go down the rabbit hole of truth, exploring the lives of all kinds of clear-thinking specialists to tease out their whys, their hows, and their piece of truth. Enjoy the ride. Welcome to the Quest for Questions podcast. Today's guest is a digital marketing dinosaur who dedicated his professional life to helping people do better marketing through his blogging, videos, and speaking engagements all around the world. Rand has co-founded SEO Moz, now called Moz, and over the seven years as a CEO, he grew it from seven employees to 134 employees, uh, revenues from uh, $800,000 to $29 million and traffic from 1 to 30 uh, million annual visitors. Currently, he is the co-founder and CEO of SparkToro, a digital PR tool, uh, which we will talk about at length in the interview. According to his bio, if you feed him great pasta or give him a great whiskey, uh, he will give you a cheat code to rank number one in Google. <laughs> the three main questions me and Rand are exploring today. What kind of business you should start as an up-and-coming entrepreneur? Uh, Product-based, service-based, or something else? Which is more important, idea or execution? And finally, the age-old question of what does my audience pay attention to and where do I market to them? So this is Conrad Yerba Mate Attic here and here's a conversation with an author of Lost and Founder, uh, a painfully honest field guide to the startup world, the one and only Rand Fishkin. Enjoy! So Rand, I'm uh, super excited to talk to you. Um, the reason specifically is that I'm not a long time uh, fan as I'm like, quite new in the digital marketing space. But, uh, you know, immediately when I kind of went on your uh, site, SparkToro, which is like your new project, I, what, what kind of caught my eye are like those few things that I'm looking for in guests. Um, and it's quite rare these days, which is one is that uh, you have a lot of like kind of contrary opinions on different topics and you are not afraid to speak them out. Um, the other thing is that it seems like you have your, you know, your expertise is forged in experience rather than, you know, some assumptions and theories like a lot of, I think, uh, you know, younger marketers uh, and people like newer to space. Um, and the last thing I think, which is like the most, uh, for me, like the, the thing that caught my eye the most is that you are actually like, a, like a good person. Like you actually, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you are actually a good person. Like, you know, based on your book articles, I read, like you're honest and you're like not afraid to, you know, say like what's, what's on your mind, the good and the bad. Yes. So you're not just showing like the, the glamorous side and only showing the wins, only showing the successes. Um, so with that in mind, like the first question I wanted to ask is actually start from the from this you know other side, which is kind of like your 
um, worst time in life, which is, uh, you know, let's, let's get back to, um, take me back to 2004, um, specifically the fall of 2004. Uh, because on, in your book, uh, you mentioned that these, the, in 2004, in the fall, there were like two most memorable uh, moments of your career. Uh, so could you kind of guide us through that time? Like what were those like two most important uh, moments of, of your career? And like what are some lessons that you learned from there? Sure, yeah. Um, I First off, I think I should qualify this by saying I don't think, I'm not sure if I said this in the book and, and it is false and for that I apologize, mm -hmm. but I don't think that these are you know, the most important moments in, in my career. Um, I think they're memorable and interesting, make for good stories. <laughs> but um, yeah, so I basically had dropped out of college in 2001 and started working with my mom, Jillian, doing web design. Um, and then eventually we had CEO, mostly because we had been very bad at choosing clients and, um, and, and very bad with our expenses. And so we were, we were going deeply into debt. We couldn't afford to pay our subcontractors, which included people who were doing SEO work for the websites we were building. And so I had to learn it myself. Um, and I started this, this website called SEO Moz, which um, eventually became the company Moz, which is relatively well known in the, in the search engine optimization space uh, these days. And uh, initially you know, when we were doing a lot of our early stage building, we had funded it with credit card debt, hmm. you know, taken out a ton of like bank loans and equipment loans and, um, you know, pre-financial crisis of 2008, you could, you could get ridiculous amounts of money uh, thrown at you by, by banks that would not um, really check your credit <laughs> very carefully. Yeah, and so... Uh, we we had I think about one hundred and fifty thousand dollars of actual debt uh, around that time, but we stopped being able to make the minimum payments. So you know, oh well, you owe twenty thousand dollars on this card. You know, you have to pay five hundred dollars this month. Shoot, we can only pay like a hundred dollars this month. Mm. What do we What do we do? Right, we're in a we're in a real uh, tough spot of our own design. Right, we had, it was it was our mistakes that had put us there. But regardless, when we stopped doing that, um, we started getting the debt collection notices and uh, we, had a, we had an actual physical debt collector, I think maybe two, but the one that I remember, the one who came looking for me, um, was just like this, this stereotype of a guy, right? Big, big dude, you know, big <laughs> heavyset guy, gold chains, hairy chest, far too many buttons unbuttoned, uh, wife beater underneath, <laughs> you know, just mean looking guy. And, uh, and when he came into the office asking for Rand Fishkin, I was like, he's not here. <laughs> so yeah, that was, uh, that was definitely one of the, yeah. One of the big formative, um, experiences around how not to fund a business. Mm. Um, and the other one was that, that SEO Moz itself, the, the blog had started taking off and getting a little bit of traction after a couple of years of my writing. And uh, it was, I think that, that holiday season, basically over Christmas, New Year's, um, I wrote something called the Beginner's Guide to SEO mm. that 
is still very popular today. It's been it's been republished and edited many times by you know by myself and then by other folks at Moz like Cyrus Shepard and then Brittany Muller and and other folks. Um, and that that beginner's guide to SEO is is a document that's been read by you know probably upwards of a million people in the digital marketing space and and really help them um, learn the practice and further their careers. I'm very grateful for that. It, it certainly was one of the things, along with the blog and some of the events that I started to do, uh, that put me and Moz on the map in those early years. Mm, mm -hmm. And I think it happened kind of like by by accident, right? Like the 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 guide, uh, the beginner's guide. Um, you didn't really plan on it to becoming so so big. Yeah, I mean the thing the thing about content marketing was. Um, up until really 2009, 10, maybe even 11, uh, content marketing was not a, a digital marketing practice that had seeped deep into the ecosystem. So, you know, not everyone understood its power and potential. I certainly didn't. I don't even think it was called content marketing yet, right? When I put out the, the beginner's guide to SEO. So yeah, I had no real sense of how poorly or well it might do. I, all I knew was, oh no, there's going to be an article written about Moz in Newsweek magazine, which, you know, <laughs> did not, it wasn't actually a big thing, right? It, it sent us a few thousand visits. It was not huge at all. Um, but I was worried that a whole bunch of people would come from the magazine article to our website and they'd be like, I don't understand SEO. What's this SEO thing that they do? And so I wrote this guide hoping to help people who might want to learn the practice of SEO and understand why it's important and how to do it. Um, and then, yeah, it, it took off. It got picked up by, at the time, uh, Slashdot, which I think Slashdot is actually still around. It, you can kind of think of it like the homepage of Reddit of its time. Mm. And what do you think was the, like the key to it becoming big? What was it just that simply you poured your you know heart and soul into it and it was just like really great piece of, you know, like knowledge and people just got so much value that it, it had to go this way or was it uh, just some like lucky breaks? Yeah, I, I think it was mostly lucky breaks. I mean, I, I put a, a considerable amount of effort into it. But at the time, I mean, you can go back and read that early version. Uh, I think it might still be online in the archive.org. And it, it's mediocre at best, right? Like you, you can tell that this Rand guy in his early 20s is not a great writer. You know, he, he's not some extraordinary guru or whatever. It's, it's just a guy writing about SEO. And it, the, the, the key was it was great timing. It was a time when SEO was getting very hot. Google was growing like a weed. You know, lots of folks were getting interested in it. There weren't other resources like it. Mm. Uh, Google themselves were very secretive. Most of the SEO field was very secretive. And uh, it happened to hit at just the right time when, you know, some of the Slashdot submitters and editors uh, upvoted it and, you know, thought it was interesting as well. That, that is really most of what happened. Mm, okay, okay. That makes sense. And how much do you think it happened? Uh, like in, in like the grand scheme of things of, you know, where uh, now you look back at it and then, you know, where Moz got to, like it, it became, you know, as you said, quite big, quite popular, quite famous in the whole space, if not the number one uh, tool in, in SEO space, then, um, you know, how, how do you think 
what was the importance of of that of the article you know uh, kind of like do you think it was like such a big key to, yeah. to it becoming big or it's just kind of in the grand scheme of things it wasn't that important that that one moment yeah in the grand scheme of things not very important the the reason it was so important um was because it showed me the power of producing content that had a high viral coefficient and reached a lot of people and branded your company and, and helped them understand what you did. Uh, and that was a formula that I followed again and again and again, right? So you, you can see with documents like the search ranking factors or a lot of my presentations that have gone viral over the years or, you know, big blog posts I've had that, that did very well or other guides that we put out, uh, the video series, Whiteboard Friday, right? I have continued to invest in content production and creation and distribution because I saw the power early on of what one successful piece could do for you. Mm. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. And uh, was that kind of the beginning of your approach, like the general approach to business um, of thinking more in like long-term, you know, like long-term uh, steps and consistency rather than, uh, rather than, you know, different hacks? Because like one of the, my favorite things, you know, from, from your book actually is, is the importance of sticking to your values, even if that doesn't make money in the short term. Um, and, and one of your, you know, top values, which is, which is transparency. So like I was, I, you know, I guess my question here is like, where, where was that kind of point of view born for you? Um, I, I don't know that it was necessarily like a, you know, a business decision from a, whatever financial and growth standpoint. I think it's just that, um, over time, as I got older, the, I realized that pursuing financial success at the, to the exclusion of all other things was obviously the way to be an evil, bad person, <laughs> right? Yeah. If you're, if you're willing to give up, right, if you're willing to give up and sacrifice sort of whatever, you know, health and safety of other people, like I won't wear a mask because you can't tread on my freedoms. Well, you're a bad person right? That, that's like at the core, that's what makes you a, a bad and evil human being, right? And goodness is I will put the health and safety of, of others above my own comfort or well-being or, or, you know, my rights or whatever it is, right? I'm happy to sacrifice things so that other people can do better, right? So, you know, I, I don't drive drunk because I don't want to murder people in my car, mm. Right, I wear a mask when I go to the store because I don't want to accidentally infect someone who's then going to infect their grandmother and, and kill her. Right, that, it's fundamental core to being like a, a good person. Um, and the same thing is true in business, right? So you you have the option of doing things like, hey, if you want to cancel your ma's account, you've got to call us on the phone. It's quite common. Yeah. It's evil, right? Like it, that's, a, that's a bad thing to do to your customers and users. We all hate it. I have had a New York Times subscription for the last six years. And almost every month when I see the bill, I go, God damn it. I really need to call them and cancel that. But it's such a pain to call them and cancel for the $7 a month or whatever deal I've got that I don't do it. And so they've gotten whatever it is, you know, $7 a month from me for 100 months because they made it a pain. If it was cancelable online, I would have canceled like five years ago, right? 
So look, I mean, I like some of the stuff the New York Times does, so it's not that big a deal. And luckily $7 a month is affordable for me, right? But you add friction to those steps and you know you can make money, but you know you're doing it at the expense of sort of the, the right thing to do, right? So, that, and that is obviously way, way, way different than I'm not wearing a mask or I'm drunk driving or whatever, you know, I'm gonna put my toddler in the car with no seatbelt or you know, those kinds of things, right? But um, it is, it, it's the way I have always thought about things. I, yeah, I can't really, I can't quite fathom another, um, another way to think about these. You know, I had a, I don't know, Conrad, if you're active on Twitter or not. No, no, Twitter not so much. It's, it's, it's not a, it's, it's very American thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it is uh, definitely very American. I think there's um, a healthy number of folks uh, from the UK. I know it's big in Japan too, mm. but um, yeah, I mean, was chatting with other folks. Um, there's some folks on there the other day who were like, yeah, you know, I know wearing a mask is important, but I don't like the government telling me to do it. And so, you know, out of principle, I'm not going to do it. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, I, I think, you know, some of, some of the people I'm like, oh yeah, I've met you in person. You seem really kind. We've been out to dinner. I like you and you're probably a bad person, right? <laughs> like probably a bad human being who's willing to do evil, harmful things to other people just to hurt them because you feel like it. And I think, you know, when I write about keeping, maintaining values for the long term, I think that what, what, um, what decades of experience have shown is that over the long term, when you invest in consistent high values behavior, you attract high values people to your organization and to your life, and you have better both financial and human outcomes, hmm. right? You, you have a happier existence, you feel less shame, you feel more fulfilled, you have positive romantic relationships and friendships and people who care about you. And when you don't do those things, you, you might be very, very financially successful. You might even be very successful in, in other realms, but you're, you know, you're gonna be Donald Trump, right? I, that's sort of your your pinnacle, your high point, that which feels to me like a low point, right? I don't, I don't want to be that person, right? Mm -hmm. That's clearly inflicting evil and malice and selfishness on an entire nation. And yeah, huh? I would be ashamed, right? I would be just ashamed to have have that be part of my legacy or life. Um, yeah, I think you. you, you I, I wish more people did. You, you said that once, and I think that's like something that a lot of people don't think about. It's so simple that, like the the reason you wanna you know be be a good person, it's not to be like you know um, get something in life even or or or, right. or or have people you know talk about you nicely. It's it's that you you can look in the mirror and not be like kind of you know ashamed of the person you're looking at. It's it's that simple. Like if you if you put as you said like I think business above uh, or money above everything else then then yeah maybe in the short term you get more money but uh, 10 years from now you will have to drink to to kind of you know be okay with yourself right like you you because you, it's gonna be hard for you to like really 
you know, accept how the, the bad things that you've done. Yeah. I mean, wor worse than that, right? I think that the, um, the reality is that what happens, and I know plenty of people like this, right? I've seen it in family and friends. I'm sure you have too, which is that people who, who sacrifice their authentic selves, who do bad things and, and ju justify them to themselves until they no longer feel that it was the wrong thing to do, right? They, they create layer upon layer of false um, information and false beliefs and false morals in order to justify their bad behavior. And it, they dig themselves so deep into that, that there is, there's no escape mm. and there's no, there's no true happiness, right? There's no release or relief. And you attract other people like that. People who are going to try and grift you and cheat you and be disloyal to you. And, you know, as soon as you don't have power and money, they're going to turn on you and you know it, right? <laughs> I mean, oof, it is, um, Look, I think late stage capitalism that we're in right now, especially in the United States, right, where there's no social safety net, is is very brutal. And so I understand the the drive to build up as much capital as you possibly can personally as fast as you can. Because if you don't, you know, your health could suffer and your well-being and the people around, you know, you can't help people around you and you can't support your family and all these terrible things that can happen to you that we see happening to our fellow citizens all the time, right? Um, you know, the brutal prison system here that uh, is, is just uh, by and large, you know, mostly for people who um, can't afford to escape whatever uh, problems or, 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 you know, justice they should face. And, and that, um, that drives a ton of people, myself included, to be scared of being poor, mm. to be scared of not having enough money. And so to do a lot, be willing to do some more sketchy things to get money. Um, I don't know. That, that's something I'd love to see changed, but I don't think that changes by doubling down on it, right? I think we need a kinder system. We need better incentives. And, and then we can, we can start to improve. Um, I think that what is true in, in, the, in the business world, in the entrepreneurial world, web marketing world, whatever it is, is that you can, you can see pretty clearly this um, trend over the long term where people who focus exclusively on the financial outcomes uh, tend to have worse outcomes than people who are values driven. Mm. Right. So the correlation, thankfully, the correlation, even in the environment that we're in, is that uh, you, you tend to do better if you are a good person who surrounds yourself with good people and does generally good business practices. And like everybody, you slip up sometimes and make mistakes, but you hold yourself to account and other people hold you to account and you, you know, desire to get better. Mm. Unfortunately, I don't know what's your uh, you know perspective on this. I think you've shared a little bit, but like from for me, for somebody that's like was super outside of this you know space of let's say digital marketing, that went into it like a one one and a half years ago, and uh, for me now the perspective is that it's uh, unfortunately it's very much at this point it's very much full of people that that will you know 
um, I think put money above everything else most of the time. Like, uh, I don't know if that's your also perspective, but um, I'm not saying like 90%, but like majority, uh, it seems like at some point we went uh, the wrong direction. And, uh, and as you said, it's, it's a difficult choice because, you know, people are afraid and, and you kind of have to put, you know, others above yourself and your close family. But, uh, but I don't know if it's as prevalent in like normal business, you know, like business as in, you know, like uh, local business, restaurants, things like that. Uh, compared to you know digital marketing and i'm curious you know what what's uh, what's your, what's your take on it if yeah. you think that digital marketing is a case some you know some is is worse off than than other other kind of um or like technology in general yeah i think it really depends which niche and sector you go into so i think there's like there's little pockets of the digital marketing universe that are very black hat gray hat manipulative you know the affiliate marketing world is is very um, money above everything else, right? The, uh, I think there's a lot of worlds of personal brands and promotions, like sort of the YouTube stars of, of the digital marketing world. Yeah. There's a lot of toxic masculinity culture there. There's a lot of toxic capitalism culture there. Um, but my experience has been, uh, the opposite, right? That essentially over the last 20 years, the vast, the overwhelming majority of people who call themselves digital marketers and whose, you know, skills in their bio on LinkedIn or whatever include things like you know, content marketing and search engine optimization and email marketing and social media marketing, et cetera, that that field has gotten far, far more professional and far more uh, generally ethical and moral in, in both the behavior of the wide group and the individuals in it. Um, and that is uh, true, very true for like the most of the events that I go to and speak at, right? You can see um, the, the folks on the stage and off just treating each other with a great deal of kindness and support and, you know, agency owners sort of getting together and, um, you know, helping one another. Uh, granted, it you know, I think you can you can find those those other pockets, and there's definitely the like. Um, I've even done some of the shows with some of these guys, right? Like very aggressive, very pure financial focused. Um, you know, exploit everything uh, types of players. They exist too. I but Conrad, if you want, you can break out of that universe. There's like there's a bigger digital marketing world too. Okay. No, I'm not saying I'm not. Uh, I'm in it, but it's 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 curious. Uh, it's 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 good to you know. It's good to hear that uh, you have like a different perspective, and maybe I've I've focused on the kind of on the wrong things. Then um, I mean, I'm not a negative person. I was just kind of you know very curious on your take. Uh, what do you think from? No, no, I've seen I've seen what you're talking about. Like I uh, trust me, I I know that world well, right? You go to the wrong Facebook group, you go to the wrong subreddit. Like, woof, it's uh, it's pretty brutal. Uh, one of the things I, you know, um, I'm very, very active on Twitter in the digital marketing world. And after I blocked about 40 or 50 people who are very negative in that universe, I, I, I don't see very much of it at all. Right? Okay. It's a much more um, positive group. So uh, that, that could be part of it too. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so let, let's, let's switch topic a little bit. Um, I, I want to talk about a little bit more now, less psychology, more like your expertise. Uh, one of the sure. more uh, interesting uh, 
takes that's a bit of controversial from you uh, that I took away from your book is is the you were talking about the adva- um, about the service based businesses like the advantages of them and the fact that now there is like a big um, uh, kind of preference right and and it's it's more kind of um, in the media and everywhere to have the product and to to be able to scale and and money and kind of uh, you know the, the scalability over everything um, but th- th- there was like a, a great um, you know not a quote but a, a phrase used that it's great to start a product informed uh, by your consulting um, so, so, so maybe let's, let's kind of dive in like uh, about your take on, on, on service-based businesses, because that's something that uh, I want to talk about because I was someone new and, and the reason I also started with service-based, you know, uh, kind of, uh, business was because it's, it's a lot easier to, to go into. You don't need capital, like you said, and there's a lot of advantages, but as you said, like what's promoted is kind of the, the scale, the product. Um, so, uh, can you kind of elaborate on your, on your, um, on your opinion there? Yeah, so I think that um, the worlds of entrepreneurship and venture capital, right? Sort of the, those subcultures, the startup world, um, which is you know prevalent in sort of technology entrepreneurship universe, uh, those have a strong focus and, in my opinion, an irrational bias toward product-based businesses and away from services when. The reality is that a service-based business can be a wonderful way to build a company and it does not have to be a separate thing from a product-based business. Mm. You can have either, you can have both, you can have a little services and a lot of product, you can have a little bit of product and a ton of services and you can build a great company and it is foolish to arbitrarily say that one is worse than another. I think the only, you know, the only um, universe in which it truly makes sense to say one is worse than the other, and this is where the source, in my opinion, of the problem comes from, is if you're a venture capitalist whose job is to, you know, put money into a hundred companies, have ninety-five of them go bankrupt and you know stop annoying you, have two or three of them hopefully become you know unicorns or or, or return a ton of money. Um, that that model does not lend itself well. That sort of um, you know one in a hundred model, two in a hundred model does not lend itself well to the services based business because services businesses tend to be profitable from the start and for the long term, but generally not always, but generally slower growing, and their exits are almost never in the public markets with an IPO, right, and almost never for you know, nine or 10 figures, which is generally what venture capital investors are looking for. Um, I think what's, what's really funny, Conrad, and what a, a lot of people, uh, especially entrepreneurs, do not understand is that I, I myself obviously have started, you know, started a product company, Moz. Uh, Moz was up to, I don't know, 50 some odd million dollars in recurring revenue. Uh, when I left, it had raised $30 million in venture. Um, I own 18% of that company still, something like that. I think there's a lot of people who assume, oh, well, Rand must have financial means, right? Like you, you must be wealthy. You must have some money. Surely you have a million dollars at least. And none of those are accurate. 
right? So what you, what you need in the venture-backed world is a huge exit at scale, which is extraordinarily rare, even for companies like Moz that, you know, end up growing to tens of millions of dollars a year in revenue. Moz is profitable, right? It's kicking off, I don't know, $5 million a year in cash, but it's not like I get any of that, right? It just, it sort of sits there and hopefully the company tries to invest it and grow and find some way to get to 100 million plus in revenue with a 20% growth rate so I can go public or maybe sell to somebody. Um, and there's, a, uh, there's, an, there's also a, a big misbelief that an agency won't make you money. Mm. And I will tell you right now, uh, I know a lot of agency owners. Some of them, I grant you, are not doing great. They're struggling, they're, they're you know, having challenges. But almost all of them, almost all of the agency owners that I know who have an agency of 10 or more people and have maintained that over the last 10 years, they have way more money than I do. Mm. Right? So, hey, being the CEO and founder and majority owner of a venture-backed business might sound sexy, right? My agency friends are like, wow, you know, your business was 10 times bigger than mine. And I made 10 times less than you, friend. Yeah, yeah. Well, what do you think drives it? Like that it's, it's, it's still, you know, like kind of uh, like so skewed. Uh, the perception or the reality? Mm, no, the, the, the perception, like what's, what's, what's being thrown out there. Because you said the reality is completely reversed. Um, maybe not reversed, yeah. but it's a lot more like kind of similar. Like what's, you know, what's possible, what the, the advantages, but, you know, I think, I think it's uh, mostly media coverage, mm. right? So it's, it's like, it's media coverage and it is the stories that get written. So, you know, the number of stories that are written about um, every successful startup that has an exit or, you know, who, uh, whatever, raises a ton of money, those stories get into tech meme and tech crunch and the New York times and the Washington post writes about them and, you know, whatever the chronic San Francisco Chronicle is writing about it and, and they're featured on top of hacker news and right. It, it pervades our knowledge about the startup ecosystem. I, I have never seen a story that's like owner of successful local digital marketing agency in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania made $6 million this year. Mm. By the way, they made $4 million last year and she made $2 million the year before that. And she made a million dollars the year before that. Her net worth is now $18 million. She is now richer than 94% of all venture-backed entrepreneurs over the last decade. <laughs> never, you've never seen that story. That story has never been told. And it makes sense, right? Agency owners don't, they don't need to go out and be like, I made a bunch of money this year, Yeah. yeah. right? They just, they just have their business. I and mean, when it works, it works. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when they have to reinvest, they reinvest. They, but they, they have no incentive to go, you know, uh, blasting that story. Venture capitalists, on the other hand, have a huge incentive to try and get hundreds of thousands, millions of potential entrepreneurs, people like you and I, you know, and, and many, many others, to start venture-backed businesses, knowing that 95% of us will fail and, you know, have crappy outcomes, three or four of us in the, in the rest of those five will have 
maybe some good outcome, but it's not clear. Maybe we'll be kicked out of our own business and our stock will be taken away from us, right? We'll, we'll be the Eduardo Saverins of Facebook, right? And then one or two of us will do really, really well. Yeah. I see, I see. So, so what would be your, because I, I want people to also have as many takeaways as possible from, from you know, uh, the, the, the podcast. Um, so what would be your kind of advice at this point in your career and in, like, with your knowledge, your perspective, your experience uh, to up and coming, you could call it like entrepreneurs or people who are kind of looking to start some sort of the business, like how would you advise them to, to look at it? Like what uh, they're going to choose between like a, you know, a service, a, a product, uh, a consulting, uh, like what, how, how, what would be your advice to them? Yeah. I, so I think you should pursue um, things that are at the intersection of you have personal passion and interest, like you like doing it and you find it fun and rewarding. And, you know, if, if that's an agency, like, gosh, I like, you know, building up uh, a services business and helping other people with their business. I love the relatively low risk of sort of, you know, my costs never really increase unless I'm doing more work, in which case I'm making more money. I can, you know, scale up and down as need be. I, I run my own schedule in a lot of ways. That's an awesome world. And if you're passionate about that and you have the skills to help people, amazing, wonderful. You should invest in that. If on the other hand, your passion is, gosh, you know, I, I really dislike consulting for whatever reason. So personally, right, Conrad, I, and I wrote about this in Lost and Founder a little bit, I liked consulting. I like the work of it, right? I like, you know, talking to folks like yourself and, and helping you with your business and like, oh yeah, let, let's talk about like your social media strategy. Let's talk about your email marketing setup. Let's talk about your content setup. Let's talk about your SEO. Let's, blah, blah, blah. I like that stuff. Mm -hmm. What I hated about consulting was the sales. Mm, yeah. I hated trying to, con you know, I hated like one-to-one -one convincing people to use my services and I hated the retention selling as well. Mm. Um, in fact, I think I hated retention selling even more than initial. What do you selling. mean by retention selling? The process by which a consultant or an agency has to sort of convince their existing clients to stick with them and to re-up their contracts. Ah, okay, so keep right. spending money with them. Yeah, right, so like, you know, we're at the end of a six month contract and I show you, hey, we you know, we've done some extraordinary things together and look, the, you know, the promise of the horizon is even this much better. And you're like, eh, El Dorado. I don't know. I think, <laughs> yeah, I could probably do it myself at this point. And right. And so, and then it becomes a, well, if you, you know, if you stop doing work with us, then I have to go out and find two more clients, you know, to work with who will replace that money. So now I got to do more selling just gets, it gets really challenging, mm. right? It's just a hard, hard, hard thing. And so um, I, I really disliked that process and therefore moved to the product business because the product business was something where uh, I didn't have to worry about selling or retention selling, especially self-service, um, self-service software as a service, which is what Moz was. It, was. it was one of the early pioneers. And so we actually had a lot of struggle in terms of getting... Um, investors on board with that idea. But now it is a very, very well understood field. And SparkToro is also in self-service SaaS um, software as a service, which uh, 
works really well for me, right? I don't, I don't have to sell any, anyone on SparkToro. Like you go to SparkToro, you try the product. It's free. We have a forever free account. If you like it and you want more of it, you just upgrade. You put in your credit card, right? Oh, it's 50 bucks a month. Great. Okay. Let me try that. Hey, I really like this. Okay. I'm going to go up to the 150 bucks a month level. Fantastic, right? That, I, I never have to sell you on it. The product sells you on it. So I like that a lot. And that is why, um, that is why I pursued that field. But hey, that, is not, uh, that does not make it right for everyone. And what would you say is that? like the biggest downside of, of like SaaS model, like now like having experience? It's expensive. It is hard to scale. It's expensive and it's pretty risky. Mm. Right. So I'll give, I'll give you an example. So we, uh, we, we raised money for SparkToro in a very unique fashion. Uh, we raised $1.3 million in, what was that? Uh, about two and a half years ago, not quite two and a half years ago. Uh, it took us about a year and a half to get our product built and launched. So we probably used up about 30%, 35% of that money, just getting to a launch point. And then we launched it and, uh, we're just, yeah, we're just over the, the line of profitability now. And that is very, very early for a SaaS business, right? We launched in April of this year of 2020, like the worst time to launch in a hundred years. <laughs> um, and, uh, uh, and we, you know, did uh, reasonably well over the last, what has it been? Almost seven months. Uh, and have crossed that line of like, okay, we're now making a little bit more than we're spending. So we can now afford to go grab some more data for our product and, and invest in some more things, right? The, uh, good, good things. But I look at the SaaS field and you can see that this, the software as a service startups, overwhelming majority fail, right? It is a very, very high percentage that don't make it past five years that never get to profitability. Um, so yeah, the, the, the downsides are <laughs> you're very likely to fail. The other downside is you, you need a, uh, a lot more differentiation in software as a service than you do in a service-based business, uh, yeah, right? So, you know, there's a lot of mediocre, I don't want to say mediocre, there's a lot of competent, but not massively differentiated consultants out there who, you know, can help you with your Facebook advertising strategy and your Google ads and your Google My Business and your SEO and your content and making your website faster and improving your WordPress, blah, 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 blah. A lot of people who can do that competently and well, and they don't really need a unique value proposition, right? They're basically like, hey, do you need help? You need my kind of help? Here I am. Good enough. For, you know, folks uh, in the, <laughs> for folks in the software field, that is nowhere near good enough to stand out from um, your competitors. Mm, that's a great perspective. Yeah, I haven't, um, haven't thought about it this way, but, um, but that's actually, yeah, that's, that, that's very true. Like in the, in the service-based, like you don't really need that much uh, differentiation to, to still, you know, uh, sell your services pretty damn well. <laughs> Our cheap-ass sponsor is this generic can of Yerba Mate, carefully made in a factory on the wrong end of Warsaw. Remember, if you dread going pate, make sure you swig some Yerba Mate. 
Um, so let, let's dive in into something uh, that uh, I think it's also very like topic that uh, that's covered in by many people, many books. Um, and I think you have a unique take on it. And I, I would love to hear, you know, like kind of more from you about it, which is the uh, kind of idea versus uh, execution. Um, because you, you mentioned that execution is not everything. Uh, but at the same time, you know, you can read in, in many places like, oh, in one place you can read like, oh, idea is the most important. In other, you can read, no, execution is what matters. Idea is just like a multiplier. Some other people like, for example, Derek Sivers say that it's like one times the other. Um, so, so maybe, you know, give your take on it because uh, I think yours is, is also quite unique. And, and in, I think people will get some, some value from your perspective on that. Yeah, sure. So uh, my my sense is that the broad startup field, especially over the last uh, decade and a half, has focused far more on the execution is everything, the idea is nothing, and we need to move back to a world where the idea is respected and important um, in just as much a capacity as the execution is. And the reason that I think that's true and that I would agree with Derek Sivers very, very much, right? One is a multiplier of the other. So if you have mediocre execution, but an outstanding idea, you can still do quite well, right? And if you have, you know, amazing execution, but your idea is a bit shit, <laughs> the progress is, you know, every every step of progress is just going to be incredibly, incredibly difficult. Um, I think that, you know, I, I was reading a great piece in uh, New York Magazine where they, they had done a lot of interviews with the folks uh, behind WeWork, right? And, and their competitors um, in, in the sort of, you know, whatever, office space, remote work um, uh, setup field. And, you know, it was basically, it was just this game where WeWork had the most money. And so they would just undercut, right? They said, that, you know, their real estate plan for where to launch WeWorks was find places where another, you know, a smaller competitor of theirs was doing well in a market, build a location or take over a location very close to them and just undercut them until they went out of business and then raise your prices. Mm, it's like supermarkets. And if you have more money than them, what are they going to do about it, right? If you, if you have all the venture capitalists behind you, you know, they can go raise their own money, but they're not going to outraise WeWork. We, WeWork's got billions of dollars. You might go raise a hundred million. Ha, 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 good luck, right? We're going to, we can afford to be unprofitable longer than you. That's our winning strategy. You know, that, that means that your execution could be perfect absolutely perfect you could dial in everything and sorry your idea was just too commodified mm. i see right so th this this i think is the is the fundamental challenge y you need that idea that is differentiated that is uh, that gives you a true competitive advantage and you need to be in sort of a field uh, I, I think not need to be but if you are venture backed and you have to, you know, find that massive growth curve, you want to be in a field where it is uh, possible to achieve escape velocity before anyone else catches up to you. 
Um, I don't like that field at all. I, I don't have any interest in it. What I love to build, what I'd love to see more people building is more independent technology, software, product, agency, services, businesses, um, for a bunch of reasons, but one of them is because your idea can be uh, differentiated at a much for a, a very specific audience, and that's plenty big enough for you to have a growth ramp to millions or tens of millions of dollars of revenue. And if you never get to hundreds of millions or billions, it doesn't matter. It's fine. If we make when we normalize the only businesses that are doing hundreds of millions or billions in revenue are worthwhile, when we normalize that, we create a world where monopolies uh, and duopolies dominate the landscape. And that means there is, we are intentionally contributing to income inequality, right? We're essentially saying for every hundred entrepreneurs, which entrepreneurs already a privileged class, right? But for every hundred entrepreneurs, there's going to be one to three winners and a whole bunch of losers, right? You're going to spend five to 15 years of your career making bupkis. And that person over there is going to spend a few years of their career becoming a billionaire. That's not, that is not healthy for a macro economy right? We know monopolies and duopolies are, are very unhealthy for civics and ethics. We know that they're unhealthy for political lobbying, especially in the United States where, where that kind of stuff is legal. Um, we know that they're very uh, unhealthy for, they're very unhealthy for stress on an economy. So when you have a financial crisis, like in 2008, when you have just a few big players dominating the field, instead of many, many smaller ones, you can't really have a purely capitalist independent system uh, working. You need massive government intervention to sort of prop up these big players who've done dumb things. Otherwise the entire field collapses. So yeah, there's lots of negatives, right? There's a ton of externalities that I don't think we want. And I would love to see more entrepreneurs feel like they don't need to build a billion dollar company, that they will be just as appreciated or more appreciated for building a company that is profitable, that lasts a long time, that employs them and their, you know, that takes care of their employees and um, lets them do work that, that makes them happy. That sounds like how capitalism is supposed to work. Yeah. Right. Whole bunch of small businesses all competing, you know, tons of flexibility in the market, lots of stress, uh, lots of ability to absorb stress. Great. Yeah, less less for um, less businesses for showing off on Instagram, more for actually like uh, sustainability and and uh, <laughs> I think you you yeah yeah and you know showing off on Instagram. The funny thing about showing off on Instagram, there's a lot of businesses where if you're showing off on Instagram, you're probably a small to medium business, so it's okay. But if you are helping billionaires become Trillionaires. You know, uh, way, way richer <laughs> because, right, you know, like a venture capital, right? So Moz is a decent example. I think uh, venture capital investors own 65% of that company. 
60-ish percent, something, something like that, right? So let's say that Moz has an extraordinary exit someday. That's awesome, right? It's exciting for me and, and my wife. Um, it's exciting for probably a couple of early employees who executed their stock options and have stayed at the company a long time. Um, but mostly it's exciting for some extraordinarily ludicrously wealthy people who will become even more ludicrously wealthy. Uh, that doesn't excite me, right? Like, I don't, I don't know what I was thinking, Conrad. What was I thinking when I was 28? And I was like, yeah, I want to make billionaires richer. <laughs> Let me go spend the next 12 years of my life trying to make these super rich people even richer. Eight-figure eight, eight help scale eight-figure a businessman to nine-figure. <laughs> yeah, right? Like, uh, it's just not, you know, that's, that, doesn't, that does not fill me with passion and, uh, and inspiration. Um, and you know what's crazy? Like, I really like our venture investors. I, uh, I thought Brad and Michelle, I thought they were good people who supported good causes, who believed good things. I don't have any problem with them personally. Yeah. Right. Like they're good. They're good people, but I don't like the way their um, their firms contribute to the world around them. Right. And and what they portend for the future and and the sort of way they make an economy um, versus I'd much much rather right. Like the the thing I feel proud of at Moz. The work that I'm glad I did is helping millions of small and medium businesses and agencies and consultants and all these types of folks to have more success in the work that they did. That makes me feel good, right? That makes me feel like, okay, that's a positive contributor to the world and to society and to an economy. And that's what I want to get financially incentivized and rewarded for. They say, uh, don't hate the player, hate the game. <laughs> exactly. You know what? Don't hate the player, hate the game is one of my favorite sayings. And I don't think it's properly understood, right? It's sort of a... Give us your thing. <laughs> individuals. Yeah, individuals are... One person can be responsible for their action, right? So Conrad, you might say to me, Rand, you did this thing at Moz or with SparkToro or whatever that I really don't like and I wish you would change it. But if we want to change things in the aggregate, we've got to work on systems and incentives. Systems and incentives govern so much of behavior at scale. That's what has to change if we want a better world. You know, you picking a bone with me, eh, tiny, tiny impact. You picking a bone with the structure, you getting a whole bunch of other people to pick a bone with the structure. You changing the structure, now we're talking. Yeah, we are incentive-driven uh, creatures, no? Uh, yeah, undoubtedly, undoubtedly. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's a great uh, that's a great point. And speaking of actually duopolies, and and I think uh, what you said, proving people wrong. Uh, let's uh, let's let's dive into SparkToro uh, because this is a tool I'm personally actually excited about, um, and we are using right now. Um, to 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 figure out like points of 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 influence, 
Um, but maybe let's start with like, uh, can you give a, maybe a slightly bit of intro for folks? Like what's, like what's, the, what's the idea behind SparkToro and where is it now or where are you hoping it, it, it's, you know, it's going to develop uh, into? Like what, what? Yeah, sure. So the, the fundamental concept behind SparkToro is that uh, right now it is incredibly difficult for marketers and customer researchers and product builders and entrepreneurs, all sorts of people to understand what their audiences pay attention to. If you want to reach chemical engineers in the UK with your new product, or if you want to reach um, uh, people who are really into the Dungeons and Dragons board game, role-playing game, uh, or you want to reach people who... um, sing professionally in choirs, or you want to reach people who are architects in Los Angeles, whatever the group of people you're trying to reach with your product is, just figuring out what do they read? What do they watch? What do they listen to? What do they follow? Who are they engaging with online? Where can I go do marketing that is not just throwing dollars at Facebook and Google and reach the audience I want to reach? And right now, figuring that out is insanely hard, just, just ludicrously hard. And so the, the concept that Casey and I had with SparkToro is we saw a few really smart market research agencies, uh, in-house firms, I'm sorry, actually build crawlers to go crawl their customers' public social profiles and aggregate all the data mm. from them, right? Because public social profiles on like Instagram and LinkedIn and Twitter and Reddit and Facebook, yada, yada, yada. You can get a ton of data by, by right, getting all your customers' email addresses, sending it through like a clear bid or full contact. And then like, you know, you get a list of, oh, okay, here's whatever. Here's my 10,000 customers or 10,000 people who signed up for my email list and all their social profiles. I'm going to go crawl all of that. I'm going to see everything they follow. I'm going to see everything they read, watch, subscribe to all the YouTube channels, blah, blah, blah. And then I'm going to aggregate it and I'm going to go, aha, now I got, now I know where to reach more people like the people who will buy from me. And I don't just have to throw money at Google and Facebook to do it. I can go sponsor this podcast. I can go pitch this event. I can go uh, run this webinar. I can go uh, reach out to this website and see if I can do a guest piece for them. I can go uh, build a relationship directly with this social media uh, source that that is very influential, and and you can do that intelligently because you know that some you know oh well sixteen percent of our um, whatever email database interacted with this social account, and they have a podcast. Boom, boom, right? Like that that might be the best marketing investment you make all year. But how are you going to know that unless you have that data? And so Casey and I basically were like, oh, dang, that's really smart. We should just build that for the entire internet so that you can go, you know, type in my audience uh, uses these words in their profile, architect, and are located in Los Angeles, California. Boom. All right. There's 722 architects in Los Angeles, California that are in our database and they follow these 250 accounts and they read these 300 websites and they visit, you know, these 60 YouTube channels and listen to these 12 podcasts. 
Ta-da. Marketing plan done. Mm. So that's what Sparktoro is. One, one of my favorite features that we, we've uncovered thus far, and uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure you are also quite proud of it, and I would love you to kind of give us maybe like your take on it is the the hidden gems, uh, hidden gems feature, oh, yeah. which basically, you know, from my point of view, it basically allows you to find those points of influence, but not the obvious ones, which are like, you know, like always when you search for something, there's going to be, oh, it's like Forbes magazine people read, but you know, that's what are you going to do? Like buy there an article? You can, but it costs a lot. But then the hidden feature, at least from, from our, my perspective, it, it allows you to find those people that still are like, they are very, um, well, th they are not maybe as popular, but they are very like f closely filed by a small group and then they are like uh, highly engaged, right? Yeah, yeah. So the hidden gems filter inside SparkToro essentially does, uh, looks for accounts and websites. It doesn't work on YouTube and podcasts um, yet, but uh, it looks for uh, social accounts and websites that have high engagement relative to their size. So essentially it would, it would find those accounts that are often um, not in the mainstream or not extremely well known in the field, but still have a lot of engagement from the audience you're trying to reach. Mm. So, you know, maybe you, whatever, you know, if it's architects in Los Angeles, you know, you could see like, oh yeah, up at the top is like Architect Magazine and then Dwell Magazine, you know, and their, their public social profile and their website and whatever. And then you, you know, in sunset and you're like, oh, you know, you scroll down and you get to like result number 95 and you're like, ooh, who's that? I've never heard of that. They reach 9% of architects in Los Angeles and yeah, maybe we could do something together with them. Hidden gems will tend to surface those right up at the top of, of the list. Mm. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the hardest thing is that... Um because what, what we are doing right now is, is very similar to that. It's just like we deliver now the, the full results. So like getting people to get to the top of their field, uh, you know, through influence, but influence is very irrational as you, you probably know. And, and my question there for you is, is do you think uh, with Spartoro, is it now or will, there, will it be possible to somehow, because the hardest thing with, with influence to kind of, you know, explain that to people it's that it's it's really hard to like map it out because it doesn't make logical sense when you you know, it's like okay we will you know you'll get on this podcast and then we talk you here you will create this panel and with this guy and then suddenly you know like you you, you go on these four places you meet this guy this guy intros you to this guy and you're suddenly like the most important person but um, do you see any way where you can with Sparktorio or not, or like some, 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 you know, your ideas for like mapping out the kind of path to, to influence? Um, so I think what is going to be difficult, if not impossible for the long term, is proving down to the last visitor and sale the impact of more serendipitous hard to measure channels like social media marketing and podcasting and content marketing and um, uh, digital PR, right? Which SparkToro is essentially a digital PR tool, right? That helps you go do all these pitches and, and, and find these sources of influence and, and go reach out to them. Uh, I think that will always be 
a very difficult to measure process. And Conrad, I believe that because it is difficult to measure, because it is serendipitous and hard to prove, you know, beyond a shadow of a doubt in your analytics that, you know, well, it was this podcast that we sponsored. It was this webinar where we were a guest. It was this guest post that we did for so-and-so. It was this media mention that we got in this, you know, online magazine or this blog. Because that's so hard to measure, very few of your competitors will put the amount of dollars into it that the ROI actually proves out, mm. right? When a, when a channel is easy to measure, it essentially becomes ROI neutral over time. So Facebook ads, you might go, yeah, you know, we're bidding, whatever. We're, we're spending $3 uh, per lead and we're making, you know, a little bit of a profit on each one. Maybe we're making whatever, 60 bucks per lead uh, that we get from Facebook. We, you know, we get a few of them every day. Eh, but, you know, we're spending a ton. We're making a little bit more than we're spending. But over time, competition in the market and other people bidding will sort of even that out such that it's really difficult to get any kind of competitive marketing advantage by spending dollars on provable channels like Facebook ads, Instagram ads, Twitter ads, LinkedIn ads, uh, Google search advertising, Google display network, right? All of those, all of those networks have an incentive to deliver to you and to the CMOs and to all the businesses that work with them, the agencies, perfectly attributable results. We can prove to you that blah, 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 blah. And they have an incentive to lobby for things like GDPR and cookie privacy and, you know, browsers that don't track so that it's impossible for us to prove the ROI of any other channel. Pretty smart, yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> right? Google, Google and Facebook basically are like, well, we hate each other. Ooh, but you know what we hate even worse? The ability to track things that aren't our ads. All right, let's lobby the EU. Let's lobby the US government. Let's lobby Firefox. Let's make sure Chrome doesn't track anything except our stuff. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's... Have you heard ever of, of, of Obsidian or like ROM Research, like the tool for like uh, note taking and like kind of linking things? Yeah, I've heard of it. I, I haven't mm. used it. Because that's uh, my, my idea would be if, if it's, you know, trying to explore if it's possible to map this out uh, using something like this or in a similar fashion, you know, the kind of link. Yeah, I think, I mean, there are ways to get some attribution, right? So one of the things that's very possible uh, that I like to be able to do is for, as an example, right? When a podcast that I'm on is produced, mm -hmm. right? And, and launched, I can see in Google Trends, if I go to Google Trends and I look by, you know, day by day or even hourly for SparkToro, I can see that when a podcast comes out and as it reaches its audience, there's a spike in Google Trends of people who search for SparkToro, right? Which makes sense. You know, you, you're listening to this podcast right now. Maybe you're like, huh, I wonder what that tool of Rands does. He said there was a free version. I'm going to go to SparkToro.com. I'm going to, you know, whatever, try out the free version, run some searches. And that happens, you know, almost inevitably with, with a mention, a media mention, a podcast mention, an, an event, a webinar, a blog post, whatever, blah, blah, blah all these different channels and sources that, that you, you might invest in in digital PR. And you can see that spike 
But when you look in your analytics, right? When I go to Google Analytics and I look at, hey, where did our visitors come from? What does it say? It says Google. Mm. Google got the credit, even though this was a branded search that happened because I was on a podcast. So your analytics can mislead you unless you're looking for those signals that show where traffic is actually coming from, right? And if, and if I didn't have the time series data to prove it, it, it'd be very, very difficult to, you know, prove to, I don't have a CMO, but if I had to prove to a CMO of SparkTor, like me going on podcasts is a great use of my time and here's why, blah, blah, blah. You look at the analytics, you're like, I, I don't see anybody visiting from this podcast website. You're looking in the wrong place. Right? Go to Google. Go to, go to your branded search traffic. Where's that branded search traffic coming from? Where's that spike coming from? That's where it's coming from. Mm, I see. I see. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a great point. That's a great point. Um, as you said, like some people will probably never get it because there's a lot of incentive to never get it. And it's, it's always kind of like that. You know, there's like some things that are more obvious, but there's less upside. And the more kind of, you know, not so obvious thing can potentially have huge upside, but also potentially huge downside, maybe not huge downside, but um, maybe not uh, such an uh, obvious upside. Um, yeah. I mean, one of the reasons, so I'll be totally frank, right? I, I do a lot of um, podcasts. I do a lot of webinars and events. I do uh, a, a healthy number of blog contributions. I do a lot of social posting and social interaction and engagement and uh, relationship building and all these kinds of things. And the, the reality is 90% of all those activities does not return um, a, a huge ROI. But 10% does. I just don't know which one mm. it's going to be. So it could be, you know, it could be that next month your podcast just goes crazy huge and a ton of people listen to this episode and me going on it is the best thing I've done all year. It, that is completely possible. Absolutely could happen. And so my job in, in doing digital PR is to basically say, I know I'm going to make whatever, a hundred investments uh, every quarter in digital PR and sources of all kinds. And I know that 10 of those are going to have shocking returns. I'm going to be like, whoa, that is great. I never knew that this channel was going to reach so many people or like this, uh, whatever. I, I was on a podcast, an SEO podcast, which I, I tend not to do SEO stuff anymore because, you know, SparkToro is not in that world, right? And, um, and I'm trying to move out of it a little bit. But there was like a couple tweets sent about it. It went hugely viral. It had like a couple, a bunch of thousands of listeners. And then a, a bunch of people came over to SparkToro and registered accounts. And we have a decent conversion rate from free to paid. So like it, it really worked out, right? But I didn't know going in, you know, my, my bias generally is to say no to those. It worked, right? I'm glad I did it. Hmm. It's like with, with investing or, or like, I don't know, let's say sports betting. You're not really, if you are smart, like you, you, you don't, you're not trying to like win every bet. You're always, you're just trying in the long run to have the, the advantage, right? Like you, you bet enough on the kind of the odds on your side, like the chances are higher than, than the, than the odds. 
And, and then, you know, the, the individual don't matter, but in the long run, in a year, are you, are you profitable? And I think that's, that's kind of what you're doing, right? And what you're saying, basically. Like, just bet, bet yeah. on the well, right, like, on the right leverage where the odds are on your side. And then eventually something will win huge and you will, you know, be kind of at the advantage anyway. Yeah, and, and Conrad, I think the beautiful thing about investing in, you know, these more serendipitous sort of digital PR channels compared to something like sports betting is, you know, when you place your thousandth sports bet, maybe you're a slightly smarter better, right? But the, but the bet itself hasn't like created a flywheel mm. for you. It's not generating inertia. However, your thousandth mention, right? If, if, if your brand gets mentioned on a thousand different um, webinars, podcasts, blog posts, whatever, Google starts to rank you higher because they see all these links and all these uh, brand mentions and all these associations. More and more people have heard of your brand, right? And so that flywheel starts to build itself up. You get that like organic, um, yeah, digital PR meets SEO meets content meets uh, word of mouth marketing flywheel really going. And as that's spinning, each of those, even the really, really small investments have a, a measurable impact on, you know, your ability for your website to rank well for keywords and your ability for uh, people who have heard of you three times versus five times versus 10 times to have a higher conversion rate. And now your ads perform better too, because you've got more people visiting your website and have heard, who've heard of you. And so you can uh, right, you can cookie them and you can uh, re do retargeting and remarketing to them. More people have liked you on your social channels. So you can now do uh, retargeting to essentially people who already liked your social account. The flywheel gets going and building even from the little ones that didn't look like they had an impact at all. Mm. You got to reach that, right? Like that's, I think the whole point with, uh, we, we are getting to that you're, you, you need to reach that like critical mass in a way, like before that it's yeah. kind of underwater, you don't see it. It's happening, but you don't see it until this, like when it finally hits some, some certain point and then you see suddenly the results, right? Yeah. This, this is exactly how digital marketing inertia mm. works, right? The flywheel is very difficult to get spinning right? Those, those first few revolutions, you know, your first 10 pitches to get on a podcast, your first 10 pitches to do a guest piece, an editorial for a, a publication, your first 10 sponsorships, whatever it is, right? Like, ugh, everything. It's like pulling teeth, man. It's just so difficult. And then people have heard of you a little more and they start inviting you to contribute to their, hey, would you uh, wanna contribute this thing to this guest piece I'm writing? Hey, would you wanna be a contributor? Would you wanna run this column? Would you want to be on this podcast? Would you like to uh, do this webinar event for us? Right now it starts spinning, it starts spinning, it starts spinning. And once that inertia is going, it's a beautiful thing. But many people don't have the patience, they don't have the, um, strategic foresight to be able to make that investment. They don't believe in the power of long-term investing in these marketing channels. They need the provable ROI of, I invested $100, I got $102 back. And so Facebook and Google dominate the online marketing space with their advertising products. I think 
if you're looking to build a competitive advantage, you can often win by being more creative. Oh, wow. That's a, that's a great sentence. That's a great sentence. So what's uh, just like two quick, like futuristic uh, questions. So one is like, what's the, cause uh, I think you, you haven't um, mentioned that, like what's, what's the short mid and kind of long-term vision with, with Spark Toro now? Like what's, uh, what are you now kind of working on? Are there some like key features, key, you know, um, you know, uh, how do you say? Uh, not the tools, but maybe some additional tools in there, yeah, uh, yeah. and then like in the in the short term, and maybe what's also like the big vision is, or is there even a, a big vision? Yeah, I mean, look, our uh, our data set right now has excellent coverage of Twitter, decent coverage of Instagram, uh, some Facebook, some LinkedIn, some Reddit, pretty good YouTube, right? But what we'd like to do, we have 10 social networks that we cover right now, and obviously websites as well. And we would very much like to increase that coverage dramatically, mm. right? So that, uh, you know, if we're, I think our database is currently 75 million profiles that we can pull from. So a profile would be like, oh, you know, here's Conrad on LinkedIn and that links to his Facebook, which links to his website, which links to his Twitter, which links to his Instagram. Boom, boom, boom. That's all Conrad right there. That's one profile. We have about 75 million of those. It's growing every day, but um, we, I would really like to see us get to 200, 300 million uh, profiles across our, our data set, have much broader coverage. Uh, next year, we have two big investments we're making. One is overtime tracking. So right now, right, you could go in and be like, hey, uh, chemical engineers in the UK, show me what they follow and read and listen to and how they describe themselves and um, whatever, their, their political sharing activity and their media consumption activity and the hashtags they use and all this data about chemical engineers in the UK. That's cool. People really like it. It's very useful for a lot of folks. We have, uh, I think, almost 500 customers right now. So great, like it's, it's going well. But I think one of the missing pieces is show me how they change over time. What are chem like chemical engineers in the UK six months from now, are they starting to talk about new topics? Are they following new sources of influence? Is there like a podcast that's up and coming that a whole bunch of them started listening to? Is there a YouTube channel that like a small but significant number of chemical engineers in the UK started subscribing to? Show me those. I want that report every couple of mm. weeks. Like, you know, every time things are changing in the field, I want to see that data trended over time. I want to show those reports. I want to be able to point to it and say, oh, look at this graph. You can see here's these breakout stars in whatever social or YouTube or podcasts or websites that are reaching a bigger group. So that tracking is something that we hope to launch in the next two to three months and then be able to start to you know, deliver those overtime graphs to people next year. Uh, the other big one is growing our profiles outside of English. Oh, yeah. So I you know, right now, SparkToro is almost exclusively English language profiles, and we have a massive number of requests for, right now, it's mostly Spanish and German, and then kind of a, a, a long list of other languages. So we want to try and grow our profile set in that way, too. Mm. So, like, potential versus where it is, where, where do you think? Is it, like, a quarter of the way there uh, now, SparkToro? It's hard to say. I mean, it's yeah, it's hard to say. I think that... What's weird is obviously the, the work, you know, the thing that we are helping with is a problem that's been around for marketers since the invention of marketing, <laughs> right? What does my audience pay attention to and where should I go do it? 
Like, where should I go do marketing? Yeah, the most basic questions, right? The most basic part of a part part of marketing, right? Like, let me form my media strategy and my you know outreach strategy, and what which what should I go do in marketing to reach the customers I want to reach? The problem is that field, that work does not have a name. If I were to say, hey, what do you call it when you go figure out where your audience pays attention and where you should go do marketing as a result? You'd be like, uh, I'd call that marketing, <laughs> right? Like I have, I have no name for it. And so we really have to build this field of, I, I think what probably it is starting to be called is audience research, right? I need to go do audience research. I need to understand my customers and potential customers, figure out all these things. But we are going to have to build the field of audience research, build the idea of audience research in addition to building the company. And that's, you know, that's sort of creating a market instead of competing in a market. Yeah. SEO Moz was a little bit similar, right? Moz in its very early days was building, there were very, very few, almost no SEO software companies. But SEO itself was understood. Like people knew what SEO was. They didn't have a good association with it back in the day. Now they mostly do. But, you know, SEO software was like a market we had to build. Now we're going to have to build the audience research market and then, you know, build a tool for it. It seems like the, the mountain's not, not, not high, like not too high for you. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know about that. I, I think it's going to be a very, very big challenge to, to truly make audience research as big as it should be, right? Like we all know that every business, every marketer should be doing this work, whether you use SparkToro or not, yeah. whatever. Like, but if you're a marketer and you don't know what your audience pays attention to, how are you doing your job? And yet most marketers don't. They don't know what their audience pays attention to. I think you don't even have to be a marketer. Like if you just have a business and you are not like hundred percent sure, like to like specific details, like what exactly is your like customers, like who are they? And as you said, I think you mentioned like the great thing about SparkToro is that a lot of times when you ask people directly this, uh, certain questions, like, oh, what do you listen to? You know, what do you like? What do you follow? Things like that. People give you like those like logical off the top of their head answers that are a lot of times, right. you know, far from truth. Like, for example, American polls about uh, elections that always kind of uh, miss the mark because it's like, you know, people just give what, you know, sometimes they don't want to get in trouble. Sometimes it's just like, you know, it's like an easier path. Um, like they don't have to think too much. Maybe it's easier, less energy, less stress. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, and it's just whatever's top of mind, whatever's recent, whatever they think they're supposed to say. Um, and also it's not gonna be comprehensive, right? What you, what you really wanna do to understand your audience, to understand your customers is get their home addresses, learn lock picking, break into their house, steal their phone, get the unlock code. And then like, you know, look at everything they're reading and watching and following. And that's how you want to do audience research. That is illegal and unethical and you shouldn't do it. But the next best way is to get all of their public data, right? Everything that they put out there publicly by choice that is indexable. Google crawls it, Bing crawls it, right? It, you can visit it on the web and aggregate all that data, put it into your spreadsheet and go, aha, <laughs> now I know where to reach my customers. Mm, I see, I see a great point. Um, 
And, and the, the second futuristic question I had, which is I basically um, wasn't mine, but I think it's a great question to you. It, it was from Nate. Um, his, his question was like, what do you, a, a prediction from you. <laughs> what do you think is going to happen to Instagram influencers? influencers? Like where, where does that feel? Uh, where, where is that going to go? Uh, my suspicion is if you are a, what I'd call like a niche influencer, right? You've built a brand around whatever. You are the most popular chemical engineer on Instagram and you have a following of like other people who are interested in chemical engineering and you know, you do experiments and you show off your work and your job, blah, blah, blah. You're doing great, right? Like you've built up a, um, a profile and a personality and a brand that probably has long-term effectiveness in influencing a market and being a great resource for yourself and helping you get hired. Just like, you know, whatever, building a blog 10 years ago or, or 15 years ago or whatever, be, becoming well-known in your field 50 years ago because you wrote a bunch of columns for newspapers. If, however, your influence is primarily tied to a personal brand um, that is mostly about your uh, like small scale celebrityism or your um, visual appearance, right? Like, oh, I look at me, I have, you know, the workout chest and the six pack abs and whatever. Yeah, that, that's pretty tough to turn into a career long term. And my suspicion is that those folks are the ones who will be most displaced by other forms of advertising and marketing. Um, that's where I have the highest level of concern for uh, whether you can build a long-term successful career exclusively through like, I look good and pose on beaches around the world without, you know, without many clothes on. Ah. That I think is a riskier model. I'm not sure how well that's going to go. I know that there's a lot of fluctuation in sort of, you know, how well or poorly those people are able to monetize their presence on social platforms and, and earn, um, you know, both earn engagement and amplification and earn advertisers who want to, who want to pay them. Um, I think some of the regulations that have come out around that have probably hurt those folks too. So I would go niche. Okay. Okay. Okay, that, that makes sense. No, that that was that was a good uh, that was a good answer. I think it was a quite a, a quite a prediction there. <laughs> so uh, so how how much uh, how much time do we have, Rand? Do you have to get going? Oh, actually, I need to run. Oh. Shoot, I'm gonna okay. be late. Okay, perfect. <laughs> um, so yeah, like thanks a lot, Rand. It was it was amazing conversation. Uh, I hope you you enjoyed it. It wasn't too long for you. <laughs> My pleasure, Conrad. It was uh, great being here. Really appreciated our chat and I will, um, yeah, be, be looking forward to this coming out. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Quest for Questions podcast. If your immediate reaction after listening to this episode is either, fuck, that's some great advice, can't wait for more, where do I sign up? Or, man, I had the same idea in mind, but I assumed it's just me being weird. Thank you for sharing. Or, this bastard hurt my feelings, offended my delicate soul, and should be banned from the internet. Then it means we're on the right track, doing God's work. In that case, make sure to subscribe, review, or do whatever else is allowed by technology to support this show. If you 
want to suggest a quest or have a question worthy of a quest, head to ConradYerba.com. Go down the rabbit hole of truth each and every Sunday. Available on most podcasting platforms, YouTube, and Pirate Bay. Wink, wink. Let Yerba be with you.